The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. For those of you who uh, might have been around in the 1960s here in the United States, you probably will recall the name of the John Birch Society. Uh, there was a, a folk song group called the Chad Mitchell Trio, and they wrote a very lively kind of rollicking satire of, of the Birch Society in the early 60s. I was in high school at the time, uh, and there were some memorable lines. Yeah, one was, uh, socialism is the ism dismalist of all. <laughs> and uh, there was another one uh, saying that, you know, members of the Birch Society, if your mommy is a commie, then you've got to turn her in. <laughs> <laughs> but there was another line that always kind of stuck in the back of my mind, and that was, uh, he... He's, uh, we only hailed the hero from whom we got our name. We're not sure what he did, but he's our hero just the same. <laughs> and I was always curious, of, you know, that, that suggested to me that there was some difference between the John Birch Society and John Birch the man, but I never was quite curious enough to figure that out until I stumbled on this project about five years ago when I was doing research at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington. And Jan and I have just had a conversation about how all of that evolved. But what I'd like to do uh, in the next 20 minutes or so is just give you an overview of the book and uh, draw on a few quotes from a few passages in the book. Uh, you know, as, as I've already suggested, of course, Bob Dylan also uh, had talking John Birch uh, paranoid blues, if you remember that one. Uh, censored by the uh, executives at CBS and not allowed to appear on the Ed Sullivan show at the time. Um, but lots and lots of people knew that the Birch Society was uh, kind of right-wing extremists. Uh, you, if you were around at that point, you may have also seen billboards around the country uh, advocating uh, for uh, the impeachment of Chief, Chief Justice Burl Warren. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Earl Warren. Or you may have seen billboards about getting the United States out of the United Nations. Uh, but what made the Birch Society notorious was uh, the fact that Robert Welch, the founder, had written that none other than President Dwight Eisenhower was a communist, communist sympathizer. And he went even further to suggest that Eisenhower's brother was a communist, that the Dulles brothers were communists, and it went on and on. He was, uh, Welch was an extremely bright man, but he was uh, overly fond of conspiracies, shall we say. <coughs> so uh, my book really is about who the real John Birch is, and how, how and why his name was used the way it was, and would John Birch himself have been a member of the John Birch Society? Uh, Birch was an idealistic young American who went to China. Uh, whoops, I got the wrong, wrong clicker. The wrong clicker. There we go. This is a photo of Birch as a young man at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia, uh, where he uh, was nominated as a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, he went from there to a small Baptist. College uh, in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, and was sent to China 
excuse me, rather in July of 1940. He was full of enthusiasm for his new life in China. Uh, and from here he is with Oscar Wells, his, his uh, comrade in arms that just arrived in Shanghai. You can see they're all dressed very natally in their white suits and they're holding their pith helmets and their white shoes. And uh, uh, this is in the midst, this is at a time when China is already three years at war with Japan. But Shanghai is still removed from the war and uh, you would never know it from this photo that there was a, a, a war raging, raging on. But Birch did then become much more aware of what was going on in China. And he started off in Shanghai, then he spent a year, he spent about three months in Shanghai learning the language, went to Hangzhou uh, as, as a missionary working at a boys' school there. And then Hangzhou was occupied the, by the Japanese, so he decided to strike out on his own with some Chinese colleagues to Shangrao in Jiangxi province. And uh, there's a dramatic story of how they crossed the Japanese lines. He, despite the fact that he was a fundamentalist uh, and evangelical Christian, uh, he took Chinese culture uh, very seriously. He learned the language. He, he, he learned uh, to respect the Chinese, and uh, he learned how to, how to get along in Chinese culture. But after Pearl Harbor, he was quite isolated in this area of Shangrao. Uh, he wasn't uh, getting money from the mission back home. Uh, he wasn't uh, surviving very well. Uh, he, he was surviving on you know, rice and, 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 and beans and not much else. Uh, and after Pearl Harbor, he decided to volunteer for the U.S. Army. He wrote a letter to the U.S. mission in Chongqing and they said, well, we'd be happy to, happy to have you. The Japanese enemy was advancing, and he realized that uh, the prospects of being a Christian missionary weren't too good while the war was waging. So he said, first things first, I have to, have to help, have to contribute to defeat the Japanese, and then I can turn to re return to being, being uh, a missionary. He expected to be a military chaplain, and he said he was willing to do anything. Uh, and if the army didn't want him, then he would probably <coughs> go to the northwest of China and start his own mission. So he was, he was very independent. He was really very courageous. And he had no idea that Claire Schnault, and here's a picture of Birch uh, a little bit later in the army, but he had no idea who, that Claire Schnault, the commander of the Flying Tigers uh, in China, would recruit him as a field intelligence officer, the, fir the first of the field intelligence officers uh, working for what became the 14th Air Force uh, in China. Chanel was, uh, was recruiting Americans who, like Birch, who knew the language, uh, who uh, could survive uh, eating Chinese food, which not all Americans could at that point, uh, who understood China. And uh, Chanel said it was a very rugged and dangerous sort of life, their attitude was in marked contrast to the cynical sneering over the Chinese war effort then in fashion among rear echelon staff officers. That's what Chanel wrote in his memoirs. So Birch actually did an excellent job as a field intelligence officer. Uh, after three years, well, he also oh, was decorated by Chanel 
for his, uh, his, his service. Uh, and one of his colleagues, a fellow named Art Hopkins, who is in the middle up here, the rogue with a pipe, they're all kind of roguish. Uh, these are all OSS members. Art Hopkins knew and worked with Birch, and he said Birch had an amazing grasp of, of the Chinese language, understood the people, was absolutely fearless, completely unselfish, never thinking of his personal, personal discomfort or danger. So after three years in the military, uh, frequently operating behind Japanese lines, and uh, Birch also suffered from repeated bouts of malaria, he was elated when at long last the war was coming to an end. Uh, he was in the OSS at this point, up in Anhui province, and he was on this base, Roger 2 Sugar, as the radio code, R2S. And the OSS, uh, rather than saying, okay, the war is over, you can go home now, uh, said you, you need to go on one final mission up to the city of uh, Shuzhou, right here, which is kind of midway between Shanghai and Beijing. And Birch at the time wrote to Marjorie Tooker, uh, a, an American nurse who had met earlier in, in the war, and he said, when the first wild thrill swept through this little river town where I was last night, I realized for the first time how utterly weary, even heartsick, the war has made me. And I think the same mixture of uh, exhaustion and excitement uh, and relief marked the U.S. effort in general. In other words, the U.S. didn't have any stomach, and the U.S. public didn't have any, any heart for fighting a, a war in China, uh, getting involved in a civil war. And the policy of the American government was to be as neutral as possible, recognizing that the United States had relations with uh, the established central government, the Republic of China, the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek, the, the Kuomintang. Um, so at this point in time, everything is fluid, everything is in flux, and no one can really imagine the possibility of a civil war that will result, I, I should say, many people can imagine that there will be a civil war. That seemed to be almost inevitable. But very, very few people could imagine that the communists would be the victors in four years. Marjorie Tooker, and this is a radio team that uh, Birch led a little bit earlier in the war. Here he is, uh, Chinese and Americans working together. Uh, Marjorie Tooker was with the Yale China Association's Xiangyao Hospital in Changsha when Birch and his radio team arrived there in 1943. And his letters to her, as I was saying to Jan earlier, earlier uh, really reveal uh, someone who is very thoughtful, very tender-hearted. Uh, there's a romantic side to him. So this is in contrast to what you might think of as, as the dour, you know, narrow, uh, sort of fundamentalist missionary image. So he shares his hopes and dreams in these letters, not only to Marjorie Tooker, but to two other women with whom he, uh, he fell in love. And Marjorie Tooker later wrote, I was much attracted to this handsome young man with his devotion to China uh, and his burning missionary zeal to say nothing of his charm and appealing Southern courtesy. John's, and the, I'm sorry, this is uh, a photo of Marjorie Tooker as a nurse in Changsha. Uh, 
uh, on the left, and then after Changsha was occupied by the Japanese, she uh, joined the U.S. Army Nurse Corps, and uh, there she is in her uniform on, on the right. Uh, and at the end of the war, she was in the Philippines, based in the Philippines, and wrote a, Birch, wrote, wrote a letter to John Birch saying, uh, what on earth has happened to you? Mail has caught up with us, and nothing to indicate where you are. And so it's very poignant. It's very sad. John's mother, Ethel Birch, and here she is at a memorial service, uh, Ethel and George Birch, her husband, with Frank Norris, the evangelical preacher who sent Birch out to, to China. And this is a memorial after the death of Birch. And uh, John's mother was at her home in Macon, Georgia, when a, a young woman driving a taxi delivered a Western Union telegram. Ethel tore open the telegram, expecting, hoping to find that her son was finally coming home from China, and instead was informed that her son, Captain John M. Birch, had been killed. He was dead. And a letter from the War Department in Washington subsequently said, it confirmed his death, and it said, the official casualty report states that your son was killed on August 25, 1945, en route to Shuzhou, China, on the Longhai Railway, as a result of stray bullets. Well, in fact, Birch was not killed as a result of stray bullets. It was a confrontation with a Chinese Communist uh, detachment uh, from the 8th Route Army, the CCP's 8th Route Army. His <clears throat> OSS team, uh, a, a team of Chinese, Koreans, and four Americans, including himself, had walked into an area where the communists were still fighting the Japanese. The Japanese had orders not to surrender to anybody except the nationalists. So there were fighting, fighting was active fighting was going on. The local Red Army uh, commander had orders to detain and disarm any intruders. Birch refused. He said, what are you bandits? How can you think about disarming an American officer? We've just won the war. Uh, we just dropped the atomic bomb. Uh, and the situation escalated. He was shot and killed. The communists later claimed that they had acted in self-defense. So news, and here is a photo of his burial in Shuzhou. Uh, my wife Ellen and I were able to visit Shuzhou a couple of years ago and able to visit this site. There's really not too much to be seen there. But there were two American airmen that were buried on either side of, of Birch. And just a few days ago, I received an email from the nephew of one of the other men, a P-51 pilot by the name of Samuel Evans, Samuel E. Evans. And he said, I read about your book, and I got a copy, and I noticed the name of my uncle, Samuel Evans, and can you tell me more about the burial of John Birch? Uh, so that was really quite remarkable. It sent chills up my spine. Uh, but he was accorded a rather remarkable uh, ceremony attended by Japanese and Chinese puppet troops, puppets working for the Japanese, who were, uh, some of them were going over to the communists at that point. It was a chaotic situation. There was a, a big funeral uh, service held in a Catholic, a local Catholic church, which we were also able to visit. And uh, this was all organized by a young lieutenant, an American named William Miller, uh, who wrote about this uh, in, in detail. 
Uh, so news about this incident uh, was conveyed by Miller, by radio telegram, to General Albert Wiedemar. Wiedemar was the commander of U.S. forces in China who had succeeded uh, Joseph Stilwell, Vinegar Joe Stilwell, and uh, Wiedemeyer had received this top-secret radio communication uh, about the death of an American officer in North China. And the news was alarming. The United States at this point is trying to keep the lid on, trying to avoid civil war, uh, trying to avoid being entangled in this China problem that they can see you know, welling welling up. Uh, and Wiedemeyer was already concerned because another OSS team, another four Americans, uh, it was called the Spaniel Mission, had been captured and detained by the communists up near Beijing three months earlier, in late June. And they were being held by the communists near the city of Fuping. And uh, Wiedemeyer was quite concerned about what was going on, what was the signal, what were the communists trying to say. And now an American was killed, so was this deliberate or was it an accident? And were these men being de de uh, detained, uh, the, the three Americans that were with Birch and the others, uh, the four that were further north, uh, was this a warning to the United States not to interfere with China's <coughs> internal affairs? Now that Japan had surrendered, uh, were these actions meant to sabotage the U.S. role in brokering a peace uh, between the nationalists and communists? Or was this simply the result of uncoordinated actions by local commanders? Uh, so, as I say, Wiedemeyer was quite concerned, but maintaining neutrality on the part of the United States would prove to be quite difficult if Americans were being captured and, and killed. Just two days before Wiedemeyer received this report, Mao Zedong was escorted from Yan'an, the communist headquarters uh, up in Shanxi province, down to Chongqing for peace talks with Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, he had flown with Hurley on an American plane. Uh, Ambassador Hurley, uh, this... Uh, uh, outspoken, <laughs> larger-than-life, uh, rather erratic, uh, colorful personality, as you can see from the photo, uh, dressed to the nines, uh, you know, accompanied Mao. He flew up to Yunnan to bring Mao down to Chongqing. Uh, and this was Mao's first time, the first time in his life, on an airplane. And you can sort of see the shock on, <laughs> on Mao's face. So he looks a little like a deer that's been caught in the headlight. Uh, so it's a remarkable uh, point in, in time. And Wiedemar requests uh, a meeting, an urgent meeting, with Mao and with Zhou Enlai, who also happens to be in Chongqing at that time. <coughs> And so on the evening of August 30, this is just five days after the death of Birch, after he's been shot, uh, Wiedemeyer has a conversation with, with Mao and Joe. And he informs the communist leaders, he points to a map, and he informs them, uh, and here is Mao and Chiang Kai-shek, 
Mao, interestingly, uh, and I think significantly, stays in Chongqing for 43 days. So this was not just a, uh, not just for show. It wasn't just a photo op, right? He wasn't just in and out of Chongqing. He stayed there, uh, isolated from his own forces, uh, while this land grab is going on in the north of China uh, for 43 days. Why? Well, it's because the communists at this point don't believe that they have enough strength to go into a civil war and win, and they aren't at all sure what position the Soviet Union, Stalin, would take, because at this point Stalin recognizes the nationalist, Chiang Kai-shek, as the legitimate government. Uh, so this is uh, a period of great uncertainty, great, great questions sort of swirling around. So, Wiedemeyer shows the map of North China and explains that Birch has been killed in this town. Birch had, and his team had made them their way up by foot and by boat and then finally by rail to this little town of Hongko, 30 miles to the uh, west of Shuzhou. The, the dash line is the route taken by the three Americans who survived and the Chinese and Koreans who were with them as well. Uh, it took them two months to go from Hongkou back all the way to Yan'an, and then they were flown out very quickly from Yan'an back to Chongqing and back to the United States. Uh, and they write about their experience in detail, but they spent this two months, the first part of the journey, uh, almost, well, seven weeks or eight weeks uh, by foot, and then the this last leg they were able to fly. So Wiedemeyer says, and this is a quote from the transcript in the National Archives, the declassified files of the OSS and the National Archives in, uh, in Washington. Uh, and Wiedemeyer says, uh, he describes this incident, the death of Birch, as a very serious and grave incident. And Joe and Lai says, why was he there? Wiedemeyer says, he was sent there by me to obtain information about the Japanese. I feel I can and must send Americans anywhere in China to carry out my mission. You mean any place? asks Joe. Yes, says Wiedemeyer. And Mao seems to be caught by surprise. And Mao says, if it's true that the communist troops shot this American officer, then I extend my deepest sympathy, my deepest apology I will investigate this engine, this incident, and also hope that from now on, anyone going into those areas where communist troops are operating, that they notify the communist troops beforehand so as to avoid unnecessary incidents. So both sides didn't want these things to blow up, blow out of proportion. Wiedemeyer then says, well, prior notification of U.S. military movements is not always feasible. I says, I can and I must be able to send troops anywhere, anytime. And Mao assures Wiedemeyer that the communists have welcomed the Americans as friends. He says, we only have one enemy, and that is Japan, even though the war is just over. Uh, and then Mao and, and Joe both point out the fact that the communists have helped to rescue scores of American flyers, downed American flyers, which was indeed the case. 
So you can see in this, uh, this confrontation, this heated conversation, uh, that the way, the way in which it underscores the issue of sovereignty and territorial integrity, nationalism, if you will, uh, Mao was polite and apologized in the course of this conversation, but we, we've learned from other records that privately, as you might imagine, he was furious. He was furious. Wiedemeyer had treated him like a schoolboy, had lectured him, and Mao was understandably very angry. Nonetheless, the communists shortly after this incident reversed their policy of intercepting and detaining uh, Americans, and they say, be very, very careful with any Americans coming into territory that you hold. So it's quite a revealing uh, incident. The death of Birch would have been relegated to a historical footnotes had it not been for Senator William Noland, who was sometimes called Senator from Formosa because he was <laughs> such an outspoken advocate for the nationalists in Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, he was an influential senator. He wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a, uh, I won't name any names of contemporary politicians to make parallels, especially people running for office. Uh, <laughs> but after the outbreak of the Korean War, he got up on the floor of the U.S. Senate and he said, I, I'm going to tell you the simple story of a lone American officer who was willing to sacrifice his life so that this nation might find out whether the communists we're friends or enemies. And he goes on to say, had the American Congress and the American people only known the story of Captain John Birch, killed in cold blood by the Chinese who were supposed to be allies, supposed to be allies, history would have been, <coughs> would have been different. That is to say, the Americans would have known the American people, American Congress, American leaders would have known what communism was really all about, yeah. overlooking the fact that the communists and the Americans were uh, working together at this point in 1945 when Birch is killed. So he calls Birch the first casualty of World War III, that is the Cold War, the first casualty of World War III. Uh, in many ways, of course, Birch really is the last one of the last casualties, one of the final casualties of World War II. A man named Robert Welch, who had been interested in uh, politics, even though, as he was a businessman with the, his brother selling candy, uh, the, the, the James, excuse me, James and Welch Company. If you ever had pom poms or sugar daddies, or other confectioners. And by the way, the Welch Candy Company is not to be confused with Welch Grape Juice. <laughs> Thomas Welch and <laughs> Robert and James Welch are two different people. Uh, but Robert Welch read Nolan's speech. It didn't get much attention at the time. The Korean War is on all kinds of American casualties in Korea, so who cares about this obscure event back in 1945? I mean, it's clear now in 1945 that the, or sorry, 1950, the Korean War, that the communists are enemies. And the, the Chinese are about to enter Korea, in, in fact. Uh, but Robert Welch reads the speech in the congressional record three, three years later and decides that John Birch is going to be the ideal symbol 
for a new movement, a new advocacy group. Not only was Birch a heroic young man who recognized the dangers of communism long before others, but there had been a cover-up of his death. So this plays into Welch's belief that basically everything is conspiracy. Uh, and this was evidence not of, of conspiracy from abroad, but within the U.S. government itself. Welch said that Birch's death showed there was a deliberate, it was a deliberate and, and unjustified killing. He claimed that Birch had sacrificed his life as a warning to others about the true intentions of the communists. And as Welch put it, with his death and in his death, the battle lines are drawn and only one system could emerge victorious. And this was uh, a, um, an illustration produced by the Birch Society some years later, uh, depicting Birch as a, a martyr, a missionary soldier who was a, a martyr. So Robert Welch, who never met Birch and never went to China, although he did later visit Taiwan, wrote a short biography uh, about by, uh, John Birch in 1954 and with the enthusiastic support of Birch's parents, Ethel and George Birch he used the name of John Birch for his new organization, the John Birch Society was not, which was not founded until late 1958 and the Birch Society uh, became uh, interestingly I think one of the largest uh, and most influential uh, conservative organizations of its time, even though it was so controversial. A lot of uh, middle-class, uh, white suburban <coughs> Americans became members of the Birch Society for reasons that we, we, we can talk about. So this book really is a story about a young American uh, who went to China to save China as a Christian missionary. Uh, he endeavored to defend China as a military intelligence officer and that's the story of how his life was used to express fear of China during the Cold War. Um, Birch had no particular sympathy either for the nationalists or the communists. His sympathies, his loyalties lay with the, the Chinese people. Uh, he didn't believe there was actually any such entity as China. China was still uh, still chaotic. It's still not unified at this point in time. Uh, so he wasn't interested at all in, in, in politics. He wanted to go off and strike out on his, his own. Uh, so he had no intention of becoming a political martyr. Uh, he had no interest, I think, in representing the kind of conspiracy that Robert Welch described. Uh, and I think in many ways, his, this is a story about how um, his identity was, was, was stolen from him. It was uh, misappropriated and misused. And so Birch himself, uh, as I write in the book, became a mirage, uh, becomes a cipher. In some ways, it parallels the American dream for China, uh, which is always shimmering in the distance, always just out of reach. Thank you, Terry. That's a <laughs> uh, I have lots of questions, of course, from having read the book and, and wanting to know more details about 
some of these things, but um, I want to open it up to everyone else. But let me just start with something that you talked about at the very end, um, that Birch himself would not have wanted this kind of misappropriation of his life, of his beliefs, and, and mainly of his name, because probably scratch most members of the Birch Society now or in the past even when it was strong and they wouldn't have had a clue about his life and what he was really doing and who he was. Um, and in reading the book I, I was struck by how much actually his own family and particularly his mother yeah. w- uh, were was involved in making her son, making their and I don't know what the view, I know you talked to all three brothers, you tracked down three mm-hmm. of his brothers who are still alive. And so I'm curious your take on the mother and then what the brothers had to say about that and how they felt about his life and name being misappropriated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, Ethel Birch, uh, John's mother, uh, he was the eldest, uh, the oldest of, 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 of the children. Uh, and and uh, she adored him. She loved him deeply. And so uh, the death came as a horrible, horrible, horrible shock. And she, she tried to investigate the details. She wanted herself to write a book about her son and what he had been, been doing in China. It wasn't easy because working for uh, the 14th uh, Air Force Intelligence and then for the OSS, a lot of his work was secret. He wasn't able to... Uh, write about it in his letters home in any kind of detail. But she went out and started interviewing people who had known him in China, and she collected letters and interviews. She interviewed Claire Chenault, General Chenault. Uh, everybody, she interviewed Wiedemeyer. Uh, she never was able to get around to writing her own book, but it was on the basis of material that she collected that Robert Welch wrote his little biography, which was really more uh, his own political platform. Uh, but Ethel Birch was frustrated by the U.S. authorities in being able to get any kind of detailed information about the circumstances of her son's death. The report on his death remained classified until shortly after Nixon's trip to China in 1972. Uh, in fact, it was delayed until a little after Nixon's visit, so it wouldn't cause any embarrassment. Uh, and because it was classified, no one could really say, or the very few people who could say for sure what had happened and who was responsible. And so that was a, and there were good reasons for that, I think, because, uh, you know, governments don't typically release classified documents very easily or willingly, as we've seen from WikiLeaks and, and so forth. Um, and, this was also a very delicate period in U.S.-China relations, and so this is another reason why uh, the government didn't want to release these documents sooner. And then, thirdly, the circumstances of Birch's death were embarrassing. The, the report concluded that Birch, to some extent, had that the, the death, the killing, was unjustified. That the communists had were responsible for murder. But that Birch, because he had lost his temper, and I argue in my book that he was suffering from post-traumatic stress. He was at the end of his rope. Uh, they, that um, the circumstances of the death were embarrassing. And uh, so the, the government was not 
anxious to make all of this public. Embarrassing him that he had brought it on himself. Exactly. With his so the conclusion was, actions. yeah, he had he had lost his temper. He had been provocative, and uh, so he bore at least some responsibility, even though, as I say, at the end it was classified as a murder and it was unjustified. As you have to remember, late 40s, early 50s, as Ethel is trying to find out what really happened, uh, this is uh, when Cold War uh, is, you know, is, is at its height, and there's a great deal of paranoia and real concern about the fact that the Soviet Union has acquired the bomb. Uh, you know, that there are spies uh, in the United States that are assisting them to do that and so forth. And so Ethel, I think, is convinced not only that there's been a cover-up of what actually happened to her son, but so she's also hugely frustrated by the fact that he is not eligible, he's not been awarded anything more than the Legion of Merit, uh, which he received from Chenault, uh, and this is Birch with a por- uh, sorry Welch with a portrait of Birch uh, in his office in Belmont, Massachusetts. But she's frustrated by the fact that even with Senator Nolan's assistance, he is not eligible for even a Purple Heart, because at that time the communists were not enemies, and so she becomes quite angry, and she writes. She writes a letter saying, I'm not a Republican. I've always voted for Democrats, but uh, I, 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 uh, I think there's something, something amiss. You know, there's, there's something really, uh, really wrong with what's going on. So when Robert Welch came along and he said, I want to do for your son what, what the U.S. government, the U.S. military has been unable to do, She's willing to do that. And I think even though she might have been uncomfortable with some of the, the philosophy, uh, some of uh, the ideology of Robert Welch, uh, you know, some of the things that he said about Eisenhower and so forth, she and her husband were never willing to disavow the Birch Society because I think to do that would have been tantamount to disavowing their own son, right? Uh, so she never breaks with the Birch Society. They remain loyal, lifelong members to the end of their lives. The three brothers who uh, are, are surviving, still alive, their late 80s, early 90s, were very generous in giving me uh, access to letters and speaking about their memories. Uh, they're, they're really lovely people. Uh, one of them had been a member of the Birch Society, but then he resigned. Uh, and I think they all, in one way or another, said to me, John was not interested in politics. He was interested in remaining in China as a missionary. His interest really was in religion. And you have to remember, this is a time in American life when religion and politics are on separate tracks. It's not until the late 70s into the 80s that those lines begin to cross. And we begin to to see social conservatives, religious conservatives, who become more politically active. But at this earlier period where the Birch Society is active, and John Birch himself, through the 30s, you don't see so much of a connection. And you say he's interested in 
in his religion, but I was also struck by reading the book that he was interested in the sort of evangelical part of his religion. He was interested in saving souls. So he was much less interested in his parents, who were also missionaries and had spent time, were not happy with some of the missionary work they were doing because it focused too much on growing food and hospitals, you know, teaching someone how to fish rather than saving their soul right. kind of thing. Right. And now this was always a tension within the missionary movement. Uh, you know, do you, do you kind of go to the immediate issue of trying to, you know, rescue some <laughs> somebody's, uh, you know, for eternal life, if you will? Uh, or do you think about, uh, you know, feeding them? And Birch was involved in some relief efforts when he was in Hangzhou earlier on. But he was, uh, because of his upbringing, because of his parents, who were not just Baptists, but were independent Baptists, uh, so they were straight and narrow. They believed in a, uh, a, a, a literal interpretation of the Bible. But what, uh, what you see in Birch, particularly after he joins, in the, joins the military, is, a, I think, a steady... Maturing of, of in his views, uh, uh, an appreciation of the fact, for example, that even Catholics could be Christians, <laughs> and uh, just a wider understanding of the world that he had not been exposed to at that point. Being in the military um, like that in a time of war, and remember, Birch was constantly, you know, behind lines and, and really in dangerous situations, even though he wasn't in combat, uh, you grow up very quickly. I spent a year in Vietnam. I was not in combat, but I think I, uh, you know, I was in my early 20s, and I think I grew up uh, a whole lot during that year, as anybody would. And so you see Birch uh, you know, questioning, beginning to have doubts about some of these straight and narrow uh, beliefs that he's grown up with, and confessing to Marjorie Tooker uh, you know, maybe they are too introspective, the two of them, and maybe they analyze things too much, and uh, maybe that's because of the way they've been brought up. And uh, he's a smart guy. He's, he's a very intelligent man. Uh, so you can see through his letters and through his interactions with other people who were uh, really drawn to him, whether they were Christians or not, uh, a number of people said they may not have shared his religious beliefs, but they respected him because he was so uh, consistent in his beliefs, because he was so uh, steadfast, he was so courageous. And uh, uh, some people uh, did criticize him for being headstrong, uh, particularly people in the OSS, which is another story. Um, I will open it up, but just one comment I want to make. You talked about how much his mother loved him. He was the oldest of her children and the firstborn, but that was certainly reciprocated. Oh, absolutely. He adored his mother, thought with the women, which I hope we'll get to in some mm. of your questions. If not, I'll ask about the mm. women. But um, he always told anyone that was interested that his mother was the most amazing, <coughs> wonderful woman. And, and that you, uh, in the book, uh, Terry talks a little bit about the mother and father before they even were married, and it's clear that she was the dominant person in the relationship between the two parents, and that she was extraordinarily energetic and dedicated 
she was the one who raised these seven children. Uh, the father was not always around. And um, the three brothers who I was able to meet, they, they lived in uh, Georgia and Tennessee. Uh, they worshipped her. They adored her. They thought she, uh, you know, she just could do about anything. And, uh, and she really could. She was, she was a remarkably strong, enterprising, energetic, intelligent woman. She had uh, gone to the College of Worcester in Ohio uh, and aspired to, uh, to be a, a, a medical a medical doctor, a medical missionary, uh, that didn't happen. But you could have done anything. Okay, Bill, will you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, Bill Armbrust, a retired journalist. And I'm here since Taiwan days in the early 70s. Um, just, first of all, does the John Birch Society still exist? Yes, it does. And it's uh, you can find it online. They moved from Belmont, Massachusetts after the death of Robert Welch some years ago to Appleton, Wisconsin. Coincidentally, it's the home of none other than Joseph McCarthy. And um, you said, who, who were the two Americans that was very next to Yes. Uh, one was a, an airman. In fact, both were airmen. Uh, one was named Samuel Evans. And the other, I have not been able to locate his name. I'm still working on that. They were, they were buried on either side of, of Birch's uh, uh, but, but but they were not part of the mission. No, they were not. They uh, they died in, in crashes uh, in the area, in the Sujo area. And I I know well. Birch's mother declined to have his remains returned to the United States. That was uh, an option. She was asked, and she said, "No, I would really prefer to leave." his remains in China because he always wanted to stay in China. He'd written to her about this. He wanted to stay in China as a missionary. He loved China. I think he did respect and, and admire the Chinese people, Chinese culture. And so she left him there. And I learned just recently, as I mentioned from the uh, nephew of Samuel Evans, that his family decided to leave his remains. What happened to those remains uh, when we visited Shuzhou, we were unable to find out. We were unable to get into the archives. We did meet with some Chinese. In fact, one Chinese medical doctor who was 10, year, 10 years old in 1945, who said, I was there at the burial ceremony. Uh, my father was a press, Chinese Presbyterian minister, and I, he knew exactly where it was. He took us right there on the first morning we were in Shuzhou. And uh, he said, "This is this is the you know, this is the location." But nobody could tell us what had happened. My strong suspicion is that the remains were removed, probably during the cultural sorry during the, even earlier during the Korean War, when there were widespread anti-American <coughs> campaigns. Okay. Um, Mark. Okay. Um, I'm Mara Cunningham. I work here at the National Committee, and I'm also a historian, so I have a question about sources and process. So it sounds like you owe a lot to John Birch's mother collecting all these letters and saving them and assembling a little archive. Did you know about that before you started working on this, or would you have been able to do this book without having access to those sources? I and have no you clue that okay. there were such letters. <laughs> right. uh, I didn't know anything about uh, the love letters that he'd written to these three women. Uh, one 
trove of letters from Marjorie Tooker I discovered at Yale Divinity School, mm-hmm. uh, a second batch of letters uh, uh, Ellen and I discovered when we were meeting with another one of the brothers uh, in, t- in, t- in Tennessee, or sorry, in North Carolina. Uh, and we were having a conversation with them uh, about John Birch, and I said, you know, there was this Scottish nurse he fell in love with. Her name was Audrey Mayer. Do you happen to know anything about that? And so the, the wife of the brother, Douglas Birch, has said, got up and went over to a trunk and opened it up, and yeah. she said, I think we've got letters that John wrote to Audrey. This is the woman he was engaged to, and she had this stack of letters, and my mouth dropped open. <laughs> and uh, I said, "Do you mind if I, you know, take photographs and make copies of this?" And they were very, very generous in that. Um, some copies of her letters, uh, most of them, but not all, uh, were in possession of the brother. But then she had made copies and sent copies of many of the letters that she had. Uh, and interviews, uh, letters that she'd received from others who knew her son, she sent those to William Nolan. And so there were copies of those that I found in Nolan's papers at Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley archives. Um, And then there were um, letters that he had written to the newspaper that Frank Norris, this charismatic evangelical preacher in North <coughs> Texas who sent Birch out to China. Uh, Norris uh, portrayed Birch as a hero uh, uh, and was eager to publish any information about Birch. So I went down to tiny little Arlington Baptist uh, uh, Baptist uh, Missionary College Back to Baptist Bible College in Arlington, Texas, and they have a little archive there, and they have all the copies of the newspaper called The Fundamentalist. <laughs> and in the pages of The Fundamentalist, lo and behold, here were these stories and actual letters from John Purge, uh, particularly a letter that I hadn't seen anywhere else about the journey that he made from Hangzhou across Japanese lines to Shang Rao. Uh, and there was also the interview by the Air Force. Well, that was a, another revelation. Uh, <coughs> we went down to the 14th Air Force Archives in Montgomery, Alabama. And uh, Ellen went off to tour the local museums and the Civil Rights, uh, Civil Rights Museum. And I was wading through files uh, that might be you know, relevant to uh, the time and the place where Birch was in China at this time. And I think it was my second day, uh, I just stopped dead in my tracks because here was a 24-page oral history interview that the Air Force Historical Office had done with John Birch about four months before his death. And they interviewed him because he was the first intelligence officer who had done this kind of work? He had done some very dramatic, had some very dramatic experiences. He, before he joined the army, had met Jimmy Doolittle. I think I mentioned uh, in um, in Zhejiang Province and had assisted them. Uh, Frank Norris and later Robert Welch said that Birch was responsible for rescuing 
Doolittle and the Doolittle Raiders, that was very far-fetched. And Birch never would have made that claim. He was far too modest to have made that claim. But others, and Welch in particular, inflated his biography for obvious reasons. And my name is Guy Martin, and I'm curious if um, dur- during the so- Chinese Civil War or afterwards, the Chinese nationalists tried to repurpose his memory or use John Birch for their own gains? Was- yeah, that's an excellent question. And he uh, did receive some military honors, some awards from the nationalists. Uh, they, I think, were eager to uh, agree that the communists had uh, murdered him in cold blood, but they did not make a big issue out of it. Uh, they were asked by the Americans to uh, investigate uh, from their sources what had happened. Uh, there were telegrams sent from the headquarters in Shuzhou where the nationalists were just getting themselves established. Uh, back to Chiang Kai-shek about the murder of Birch, so it did get some attention at the highest level. But I think that there was so much uh, going on at this time. This is such a chaotic period of, of time, and so much in flux, that it wasn't something that they decided to focus on. And I think the main reason for that is they knew full well that Wiedemeyer had made an issue of this with Mao and Zhou Enlai, and I think they realized that it was in their best interest to try to keep this fairly quiet and not to, you know, not to uh, turn it into a cause. But it's a good question. Gary, I'm curious what this, his intelligence work... Mary Helen Hendricks? <laughs> I'm curious what does his intelligence, what did his intelligence work um, post up and whether or not there's any possibility that that work had any kind of contaminating or uh, effect on his death, or had any relation to his death. Another really good question. Uh, he was responsible for uh, managing uh, Chinese agents in the field. Uh, he had radio uh, intelligence networks that had been set up you know, across pretty wide areas. He assisted working with both the nationals and the communists, depending on where he was, with the rescue of downed uh, American pilots. Uh, he provided weather reports. Weather reports in this day and age, you know, where you didn't have uh, Google and satellites and all of that, were really uh, critical uh, because uh, the, the weather pattern, you know, 100 miles away, 200 miles away, could be very different. And so this was extremely important for uh, the Americans, you know, flying their missions. Uh, and he was also gathering uh, whatever information he or his his teams or his agents could on the movements of Japanese troops, uh, you know, that, that kind of information. So, as I say, there was, particularly when he moved up to Anhui province in North China, there was coordination, there was some interaction with the communists. There was no love lost for uh, the communists, but there was one of Birch's commanding officers uh, in the OSS, so Birch was very pragmatic about the communists. He said if they were willing to work to fight the Japanese, then he was all for it, right? So he wasn't an ideologue uh, that, you know, like you might imagine. Uh, 
There has been an argument that because he was an intelligence officer and because he was knowledgeable that this did contribute to his death. Uh, there, there is uh, an author of really a very well-researched book uh, on the history of the OSS in China who makes this argument. Uh, but I think it doesn't hold up uh, because Birch uh, was a low-level officer. There was no particular gain from the communists in intercepting him and uh, getting rid of him. And uh, so I don't think the argument holds up. I go into that in more detail in the book. Frank? First of all, Terry, uh, Frank Gale, United States China Exchanges. Uh, you tell a wonderful story, Terry. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to mention a personal note on my encounter with the John Burke Society regarding China. Uh, after my wife and I came back from China, in 1971, having met Joe and Lai and uh, two of the gang of four, uh, we, with the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, uh, wrote a book published by Bantam. And as happens with these books, Bantam arranged for speaking tours all around. Uh, one of the first was at Vassar College, and it would have been just about January, February, if my memory goes which is to say just before uh, the, uh, the Nixon visit in 72. And we were protested. And the people who were protesting us, both before our talk and as the audience exited our talk, were people from the John Birch Society. Uh, there were, I think, four or five, and I think I still have two posters that they held, which are in mini storage. Unfortunately, I have forgotten the content, but I can find it. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see that. Thanks. Peggy Institute of International Education. So this picks up on that a little bit. You dropped a little nugget about why were white suburban women all members. So some of those were bastard girls. Um, what's the story? What's the attraction? Yeah, and right. you can say a lot of the majority of Birch members were women. Uh, significant number. Significant yeah, yeah. I think um, this comes at a time when a lot of Americans are concerned about Cold War. Uh, but um, Robert Welch was very, he's very effective in marketing. He knew how to sell candy. <laughs> and selling politics in some ways is not all that different. Uh, it's a marketable good. And what Welch was able to do that uh, Joseph McCarthy did not do was to get down to the retail level. You know, McCarthy was a wholesaler, right? By way of the media. But Robert Welch organized chapters. Some people describe these as cells, you know, a la the Chinese government, the, the, the Communist Party, right? Uh, but these, these were small groups uh, and they would meet at least once a month. Uh, Welch was prolific, put out, you know, had his own magazine, uh, had all kinds of, of literature. Uh, he, uh, you know, there was no end of information and material. And he had this way of compiling 
fact upon fact upon fact to sort of be very convincing and very compelling. At the same time, if you listen to his speeches, which you can find online, he's incredibly boring. <laughs> he's very dry, but he's, he's, he's a very bright guy. Um, and so I think these, what appeared to be logical, compelling arguments, uh, the, the camaraderie, the, the, the sense of sharing uh, an interest, a concern, you know, being able as a citizen to stand up and pledge allegiance to the flag, which you would do at the opening of every Birch Society meeting, uh, and then to talk about world events. This is before organizations like uh, World Affairs Council and so forth, foreign affairs groups. Uh, you know, this, I think, satisfied a, a need that was out there. So it was a combination of the message and the organization. And it was particularly popular, particularly effective uh, in Southern California, uh, Texas, uh, some of the other Western states. Uh, even though the Birch Society was based in uh, Massachusetts, Belmont, Massachusetts. Hi, Tom Bronfeld at Fire State College. I, perhaps it should be mentioned that one of the people with Welch who founded this was the Koch brothers' father. <laughs> yes. um, so what I want to ask you, though, is that not long after this was formed, this is in line with this appeal to, to women that are but not long after, William Buckley in National Review excoriated John Versailles, said they weren't conservative, they were radical. And I wonder if you know what the consequences were for the John Birch Society. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, Buckley, who was an up-and-coming uh, conservative, saw Welch after he had... Uh, come out and said uh, after it came out that he had said that Eisenhower was a communist uh, Buckley said this is just going too far and if we allow this to happen uh, the whole conservative movement will be uh, affected so he said if, if we are responsible conservatives and he said this to Barry Goldwater at a meeting in Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, Florida he said if we don't read this guy out of the conservative movement uh, we might be in trouble. So Welch was attacked from both both the left and the right. And I was able to, with the uh, uh, agreement of Christopher Buckley, uh, William Buckley's son, I was able to look at Buckley's papers uh, on all of this. Uh, but Welch said that they lost, or sorry, they, they gained as many new members as they lost as a consequence of this. Uh, they number of Bridge Society members at, at its height may have been as many as 100,000. It wasn't that large. It wasn't and that its height was when? Early, early 60s, very early 60s. But uh, they were effective in advertising. They, they had letter-writing campaigns, you know, writing to your congressman. They, will, they had campaigns to infiltrate the local PTA uh, to... Uh, protest uh, books in, in your public library that were, uh, you know, that, that showed evidence of socialist or communist leanings. And so that's why all these satires come out. Uh, but the Birch Society did survive. I think the 
collapse of the Goldwater bid for the presidency really marked the uh, eclipse of the Birch Society. That was the, the beginning of, of, not the end, but uh, it no longer had the voice it did, number one. Number two, late 60s, with the civil rights movement, the civil rights protests, the Vietnam War protests, you see far more radicalism on both the left and the right, and willingness to use violence. The British society never preached violence. They preached anti-big government, uh, strict interpretation of the Constitution. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> so you can, and, and there are scholars who draw a line between this early conservative message and today's contemporary Tea Party. Well, on that note that brings it up to date, which I was hoping we would be able to do, um, we've reached the witching hour. We try to let people go exactly at 7, but we hope that many of you will buy the book, which is on sale right outside, and Terry will be happy to sit here and sign your copies. So join me in